Hi, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. And I'm Molly Williams. Join us as we take you on a musical journey of 40 years, 14 albums, countless great songs, and lots of great Duran Duran memories. From the band's self-titled debut album in 1981, through to the Paper Gods release in 2015, and, fingers crossed, a new album in 2021, the Duran Duran Albums podcast celebrates each of the studio albums while telling the story of the band. We chat through each album track by track, pick some of our favourite songs and memories from when the album was first released, and ask podcast listeners to give us their thoughts on each record. And we'll also have interviews with other Duran Duran fans throughout the course of this series, as well as extra episodes on everything from non-album songs, favourite gigs and the band's various side projects. So while you might want to save a prayer till the morning after, listen to the podcast now. Subscribe, spread the word, and celebrate 40 years of great music on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. Molly, we're finally at the album that I've been promising that we're going to be talking about for a while. Of course, I'm talking about No No Notorious, as I as I promised in the last podcast. It is going to be a standing joke, and not very funny one. I hasten to add, but um, Duran Duran's fourth studio album, obviously a lot to talk about in relation to it. But just even in terms of you know when you were listening back through it ahead of doing this podcast, how do you think your thoughts on it have maybe changed from then and now? Well, um, back in the day, you know, I, I've mentioned it a couple of times now, I think I kind of moved away from Duran Duran when, when I had moved out to LA, which is totally unfortunate because I think it was around about this time that they actually spent quite a bit of time in Los Angeles. You know, my timing, as per usual, pretty damn rubbish. But yeah, I mean, re-listening to the album, I definitely remember the singles and they do... They bring back the whole nostalgia of the mid to late 80s because it was very much the um, very stylized videos. The whole that it was produced by Nile Rodgers, it just stands out from miles and miles away. And, you know, I think it was Stevie Winwood uh, and then Robert Palmer as well. You know, they were all kind of of that period and all had that kind of funky brass and good bass lines kind of thing going on. And uh yeah, it, it brought back fond memories and it's it's actually listening to the album. There were some of the songs that maybe I was just like a bit meh about, but I think it's definitely the sort of album that is a grower, not a shower. Do you know what? It's one of those ones, I think, when it comes to, when we eventually come to trying to choose our top five out of the 15 when the new album comes out. I think it'll be fighting for a place in my top five. I don't know if it'll quite make it. But do you know the thing I've found when, I think I've said before when we've been doing each of the albums. So this one came out in November 1986. So obviously I tried to think back. I'd have been 20 then. I was just in my first year at college. So I'm guessing probably the date it came out in 21st of November. So I, I stab in the dark. I would probably have maybe gone to a couple of classes during the day and then just gone to the student union for some cheap alcohol at night, which was kind of the pattern for about four years. So I, I remember, and again, as a tradition for the podcast, although it's only audio, I do have my vinyl copy of the album. Excellent. Interestingly, and I was trying to think again, back to being that age. So I don't remember ever having a conversation with my pals at college about Duran Duran. And I don't know if it was kind of similar to being at school that 
it wouldn't have been the sort of band that, that I, you know, if somebody had asked me, did I like them, I would have said yes, but I, I'm not sure if it would have been something that you would always, in a group of guys, you would have said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Duran Duran fan. I would have gone and seen them at the time and obviously bought the album. But it, I just don't remember. I mean, I think we obviously at that time had other focuses on our life as <laughs> students, but it kind of does take me back to that period of time. Yeah, I think, um, again, like I've mentioned before, that time frame uh, in Los Angeles, it was very much about the big hair metal bands. And I think probably there was a, a certain level of peer pressure that I I would never have admitted that I was a big Duran Durani at that point in time. It just wasn't cool anymore. I think they had definitely lost their cool vibe, at least in my realm of society at that point in time. It was all about banging your head and making your golden locks flow and all that sort of thing. <laughs> Sadly, I never had golden locks or, or many locks ever. So, um, <laughs> do you know the, the thing I, because I, it's the album, it's the first one that struck me, and I think we spoke about this, about how one of the things, and people always say one of the things they like about the band is they're always trying to do something different. They're still the same band and you can still recognise the sound, but they're trying to be innovative. They're trying to do things different. I think this was the first time where I really noticed that. So I think certainly the first two albums, it's like a progression. And even to an extent, Seven the Ragged Tiger, it's the same, the same band. Obviously, the, you know, a couple of the band members had left. Roger and Andy had left by this point. You mentioned Neil Rogers. It just felt, the whole sound, I think, of Notorious felt different. I think it was almost like a mature Duran Duran that, that appeared because obviously they went through all the, um, the trouble and strife with Andy. I think they tried to persuade Andy to come back to play on the album. And that turned into a bit of a nightmare scenario for all of them with lawyers involved and that sort of thing. And then I think it was about this time as well that they got rid of their original managers and they took over managing themselves. And um, just in the course of doing the research on here, uh, watching the the documentary uh, Three to Get Ready, you actually see them having business meetings with uh, record executives and that sort of thing. And they are really trying not to make it a business sort of endeavor they are trying to stay true to their music and that sort of thing but that's bound to put a bit of cynicism into a musician to realize just how shit the industry is and I think they did their damnedest to make sure they were still true to their music and and who they were as musicians. I always feel that that's a distraction as well that you know as musicians their focus should just be on writing the songs and, and performing them live and recording albums and I think when they they get distracted by the business side of it. That's why, you know, most bands, just if not all bands, will have managers because they need to take care of all that stuff. Otherwise, you lose your focus. And, you know, you've probably seen it with other bands that can sometimes lead to the disintegration because they start to, you know, get distracted, maybe start to fall out about things that they really shouldn't. And it becomes non-musical differences. And, um, you know, I think... Having the, the breakaways uh, with the power station with Arcadia, you know, you know how we were saying in the last podcast that it felt like they were able to just kind of take a bit of a breath and say, okay, we don't need to confine ourselves to being Duran Duran. We can just do what we want to do, take our time with it. And I think this Notorious was kind of like the next step that, you know, they were able to take the break. They realized, you know, that they, they were more mature. And I think they were really trying to not become just a business they wanted to do it for the love of the music and then you know having Nile Rodgers involved in it you know I think John Taylor was probably one of the the biggest fans of Nile Rodgers and Chic 
So, you know, it's probably like a, it must've been like a boyhood dream for him to be able to work with them and, and have such an important and influential person uh, producing their album. You know, I think there, I've, I've read some reviews over the course of time, you know, now Rogers is still active today as a producer, but people have said that he, his style, it doesn't date, that it seems to be quite a classic style that he has. And, you know, I think probably for, for me, Notorious does feel very much of the era, but maybe upon listening to it a few more times that then maybe there will be some songs within it that will be true classics. And I have to say, to be honest, American Science just keeps going round and round in my head. That one has become a total earworm for me. It's interesting when you say now, Rogers, I've seen him before saying that he, you know, considers himself the fifth member of Duran Duran. So that's how integrated he is in the band. We'd asked for people to comment again on the album on Twitter, which we're going to get through in a, a wee minute, just to let people know that obviously we're going to we're going to talk through the track track by track. We'll have the latest instalment of the Duran Duran story. We also have a clip of an interview that I did with Elisa Lorello talking about her memoir, Friends of Mine. So we'll, we'll show a clip and again, we'll put the full interview out as a bonus episode. And then the top three this time, just to make it a real family affair for me, because obviously my daughter reads the Duran Duran story and my sister has recorded her top three. So she only I've only decided to play this because she does say some nice things about me in it. So... Um, <laughs> So we'll hear that towards the end of the podcast. But again, which I think we find in every episode now, we get some really brilliant response when we, we ask people for their thoughts. And Notorious, generally pretty positive. There's one brilliantly uh, negative comment, which I just had to put in because I thought it was quite funny. And obviously this thing's all about opinions. But in terms of the comments, the first one that we got in was from Heidi Jensen. And she says that Notorious was the first album released after she became a fan. And she goes on to say, it's still one of my all-time Duran Duran favourite albums. I like, no, I love all the songs. I like Proposition the best and Winter Marches on the least. And Heidi finishes by saying, I really like the all-pervading funk theme. Absolutely. Again, you know, it just goes back to, to now Rogers again and again and again, doesn't it? So we also had a contribution from Graham, and he was one of the, the pro-Notorious people. So he said, um, I liked the Notorious single and I bought the album, but my music taste had gone in another direction then. Totally get what you're saying there, Graham. It was big thing that brought me back to Duran Duran and led me to rediscovering this three years after its release. Now number four in, in, in his all-time list. So his top three from the album were Notorious, A Matter of Feeling and Hold Me. Okay, it's interesting. I'm going to ask you in the course of this not just now but I'll ask you what your favourite track on the album is although you've already oh. mentioned American Science so that, that might be the one I, I said that that was an earworm I didn't necessarily say it was <laughs> this is the the negative comment now it's the, the Twitter handle it's a series of numbers but it, the, the actual Twitter handle is at AB834755 and I don't know whether the numbers so it's 2650 1642 203252 I don't know what they signify but anyway lottery numbers maybe <laughs> <laughs> do you know it's funny i'm just looking at i might try that for the next lottery just those numbers and if i win then uh, i'll uh i'll weigh whoever that is as a wee thank you <laughs> and, and i've said i've said it now so i have to i have to be as good as my word it could be like the film it could happen to you i'm the 21st century nicholas cage but anyway the comment is one of the worst duran albums for me this is when they lost temporarily their colors and magic 
The videos are boring and the music itself barely escapes that. Very disappointing. Had to wait two years till they regained their magic with Big Thing. So again, as I mentioned, these things are always subjective anyway. So, which always, I always love that about music is that, I mean, even you and I could listen to the same song and have completely different reactions to it. But you know what I love, and I have said it before about Duran Duranis, is that we can be quite critical. We aren't just, you know, we don't just like lay down and go, oh my God, I love every single thing that Duran Duran has ever produced. We're mature enough, I guess, to recognize that sometimes they do drop a clanger. And, you know, this is the clanger for, for this person. Yeah, and uh, thanks for the winning lottery tickets <laughs> while I'm at it. Don't forget me when you win then, eh, Paul? Of course. <laughs> I was going to say you'll be first. They'll be first in all, but obviously you won't be. Or else you'll be you'll be tuning in to record the next episode of the podcast and and I'll be I'll be in some exotic location. Anyway, so on to the next comments that we had from Twitter. This one is from Russell Morris, and he says, Call me old fashioned, but I love the notorious video. That notorious video is just so stuck in the 80s. Nile Rogers and Steve Ferrone. Great dancing and energy. Shame about skin trade and meet El Presidente videos. Prefer the excerpts on on, uh, three to get ready. You know, I don't even know if I even found the video for El Presidente. I obviously saw the ones for Notorious and Skin Trade, but I'm not sure I saw the El Presidente one. I think every time when we do these podcasts or when people comment, and again, you've you've mentioned it quite a lot, videos were very central to Duran Duran in the, the States and North America. So I don't really, there's very few videos that I'm, I'm that familiar with because I just automatically I would just listen to the music. So I couldn't tell you anything about those three videos at all. I think by this point in time, MTV had really hit its peak and, and perhaps Duran Duran were a little bit oversaturated uh, and, you know, on MTV. And yeah, to be honest, they weren't particularly groundbreaking. I don't think any of these videos, they all just looked black and white with sexy women writhing around. Maybe should investigate them. <laughs> um, Russell had mentioned the Three to Get Ready documentary, which I hadn't been aware of until I was just doing research into the album and watched the video, uh, watched the documentary. It's a brilliant documentary. And, you know, apart from the fact that, again, it just strikes you how young they are, but they're, you know, they're so well established. But I think it's a great documentary on them trying to kind of find their way and find their footing after the fact that Andy's left and Roger's left as well and, and just, you know, sort of reassemble as a three-piece and how that works. And I thought it was really, really brilliant. Yeah, I thought it was a, a great documentary as well. And what I found really interesting is it put it very much into context for me as to what was going on at the time, because I think there was a part of the the documentary, they were in a car, the three of them, uh, on the way to shooting Soul Train. I want to get onto that one you know, later on in the podcast, but um, they were talking about what was in the charts and, and it was a uh, U2. They were talking about how they were in the charts and how it seemed like U2 was everything that they weren't. And they had, U2 had been around about as long as, as uh, Duran Duran had been and how quite different roads they had actually taken. So it was really interesting. And then I think the whole premise of the documentary is they were putting together the, uh, the strange behavior tour. And I think somebody had mentioned in, in some of their comments on Twitter that they saw Duran Duran supporting David Bowie. So again, it puts it into that realm. And I, I know Nick Rhodes was always a fan of, of David Bowie and, and they were talking about 
whether they were in the same league as, as David Bowie. But David Bowie seems to transcend all the different genres and types of music are out there. And I think, you know, probably that's kind of what Duran Duran have always aspired to. Uh, I've got a couple of comments here. First one is from Tomorrow's Rain, who says the, the Strange Behaviour Tour was the second time I'd seen Duran Duran live. The album was just okay for me. Considering all they were going through, not surprising. Notorious is fun enough, and I think Skin Trade is the best track. And Alan W, he says, I was in pure 80s rock mode at the time, but glad I stayed. Really good album. Love the production. Missed opportunity in the singles. Always thought Hold Me was strong. Winter marches on as meh, 8 out of 10. See, you know, I think there's a theme kind of coming through because at this point in time, Duran Duran were competing against the likes of, you know, the the rock, 80s rock sound that was coming through. But they stood firm and, and you know, that's the reason why they're still around today. But uh, he, he raised a, an interesting point around kind of the disaster that happened with the singles, because I think for a lot of critics of the band, they think that the choices of the singles was pretty poor. And that could have been one of the reasons why Notorious didn't do as well as it could have done if they had maybe made some uh, different single release choices. Um, if we go on to Delisa, who's a cat lover without one. This is my second fave Duran album. It was an instant love when I first heard it. It's solid with the funk and dance grooves with a little melancholy mood. It sounds like they enjoyed recording it. Favorites are Notorious, American Science, Winter and Proposition. Least favorite is Hold Me. I liked it that she mentioned the melancholy mood because that's always been one of the, the key points about one of the reasons why I love Duran Duran because they do have their navel gazing phases and they tend to have a track or two on each album that allows you to, to wallow in your melancholy. I have to agree with her on that one. H, who is at Wisdom of Harry, says, the first album released I experienced as a fan, as I got into them in late 84 at the age of eight. Loved it then, love it now. As some of Simon Le Bon's best lyrics across it, it's always tagged as the Nile Rogers album, but Steve Farone's name should always be injected into that statement too. And he's, of course, the, the drummer who came in for your beloved Roger, who had decided to call it a day. Yes, well, you know, Roger, I would like to think was irreplaceable, but but yeah, I think um, Steve Ferone's name was really important in, in contributing to the album. Also, we should probably mention the fact that Warren Cucurulo, he uh, he stood in for, for Andy. And it's interesting because he used to be the guitarist for um, an L.A. band called Missing Persons. And I remember at the time, you know, kind of knowing about Missing Persons and it's interesting to have that link between Missing Persons and into Duran Duran. But um, he obviously made a contribution to the album. But it's been funny because in, um, in various articles and that sort of thing that have come out since then, there's so much intermixing between uh, the work that Andy did do on the album with what Warren has done that they, you know, even amongst themselves, they can't actually say, yeah, that was Andy's guitar or if that was Warren's guitar. Again, we've got a few one-liners here. One from Canada, 96. Notorious is my go-to album. There's not one bad song on it. Angelina Loves Simon 2 says, Love Notorious. Every track is my favourite. Can't wait to hear the podcast. Uh, so we'll try to live up to your expectations, Angelina. And then another Pleasant Valley Sunday, which is a, a great Twitter handle. This was my first Duran record after becoming a fan. It's easily top five for me. Excellent. Good news. Then we move on to um, Sharon Lee, who has said, an album that is consistently brilliant from start to finish. I think she might kind of like it then. Um, Notorious is superb, especially when you're seeing them live. 
but hold me as a real winner for me with a poetic matter feeling for those wistful moments. So again, you know, we, we like our little melancholy bits and a bit of a slower pace. Steve Dewar, his top three is American Science, So Misled and Skin Trade. And also says, if you get a chance to check out the demo of Hold Me, it's an instrumental called Rope with just Nick, John and Steve Farone jamming in the studio. Brilliant. As soon as I saw the word instrumental, because that's one of the things that appeals to me about Notorious, there's no instrumentals on it. It's almost <laughs> as if they made the album just for me. They probably did. So did you um, actually look out the song? I haven't. No, not yet. I will. I will just to see whether it is as brilliant as Steve says. And funnily enough, um, one of the interesting tidbits that I had read about when I was doing the research was the band tended to call the, the album their Alfred Hitchcock album because a lot of the song titles are related in some way to Hitchcock movies. So I think Rope might have had some yeah. sort of association. It was a Hitchcock that. film, yeah, and Vertigo, obviously, as well, and Notorious. Yep, definitely. Then if we move on to um, Teresa, a.k.a. T, this is the one that had mentioned them supporting David Bowie on tour. So she says, Me up El Presidente, American Science, Hold Me, Notorious, Winter Marches On, Skin Trade, Vertigo, Do the Demolition. I don't know if she's just listing the, the track listing or if she's saying that <laughs> all of her favorites. Basically, I think she likes the whole thing. I saw the band for the first time in support of this album. They opened for David Bowie. Okay, so you got me inspired to listen to the album. Reminiscing about that very hot August day. It's going to be 106 degrees wherever she was that day that she wrote this one on. When I first saw The Lads, as I fondly call them, I was thrilled because it was them and David Bowie, but sad no Andy or Roger, my notorious memories. I love it. You know, this goes right back to one of the reasons why we, we started doing this podcast. The memories that it has evoked for all of us, you know, going back and listening to these albums and thinking about the memories, you know, that's a brilliant memory to have about a gig because I know that there have been some, some gigs in my life Many that I have forgotten for one reason or another, but some of them will stand out, you know, from the time that I was 12, 13 years old at my first gigs that will always live on in, in, in my mind. So I think that's fab. I also think as well, if you could have gone to a gig where you saw David Bowie and Duran Duran in the same bill, that, how amazing is that? Well, I, I got the chance to, um, to see him for the Astronaut album and they had Scissor Sisters supporting him. And that started me on my uh, fandom of Scissor Sisters. And th that was just such an amazing lineup for, for those gigs. Well, I think without further ado, we should uh, let people know what we think of the album. So if we start with track one, the, the title track, what do you think of no, no, Notorious? Firstly, can I say, obviously, I have conversations about Duran Duran with quite a few people now that we're doing this podcast. And I swear to God... Everybody does that. Even if you don't even know who Duran Duran is, if you, if you say they know the single Notorious and they have to do it, no, no, Notorious. <laughs> Makes me laugh. Yeah, I think, again, it, it just, it's so evocative of that time and place. I do go back to the videos and I just think of Robert Palmer, Addicted to Love, Stevie Winwood, and this video. They're all, you know, very, very similar. And then as I was listening to it as well last night, it reminded me of that, of the Peter Gabriel song, Sledgehammer, again, that was around about the same time. And I don't know if maybe it was the horns, maybe it was kind of the, the funkiness between both of them, but that was, 
that was the link that I was making. And again, I was some pretty good musical times, I think. So yeah, I, I've, I've got really good, positive memories that come from this song. Well, you know, I, I always like to see what the first song on an album's like, to see it kind of a taste of what's to come. And I think, I mean, this would be right up there as one of my favourite opening tracks. And I've actually, I'd said to you, I've put a wee Spotify playlist together. Probably not the first person to do it. I've just taken the first track from each of the 14 albums and putting it as a wee playlist, which I'll put the link on our Twitter feed and people can listen through. I, I think it's a brilliant song. I also think, I think it's got a really iconic opening. And I think it was a real, as soon as you started listening to it, you knew you were going to be listening to something different because it had a totally different feel. It's very much, you know, even if you didn't know, I wouldn't have known when I first listened to it that that's the influence of Nile Rodgers. But I just knew there was something, a different sound to it. And interestingly, when you were saying about how there's gigs that you remember that stay with you, one of the best gigs I've ever seen, there's a venue in Glasgow called the Kelvin Grove Bandstand. So it's just a, it's a bandstand in a, one of the parks in Glasgow. And I think it's the best venue, I think, for open-air gigs. You can get about 1,500 people in. I've not seen a bad gig there. This, the sound's amazing. Nile Rogers and Sheik played a gig there. And part of the set was Nile, the band, playing all the different songs. So he played Bowie, Let's Dance. He played Daft Punk. He played the Madonna song. And he played Notorious. Just to kind of show people, this is what I've done over and above all the amazing songs I've wrote with Sheik. It was brilliant because it was really cool guy and now we're just playing a really cool song. I think I, I love Notorious. I think it's a, a brilliant song. You know, I think it just proves. I think now Rogers is just a rock god. He he has his some some critics that don't really like him and don't really rate him. But my goodness, you know, when, when you start talking about the range of artists that he's worked with, blimey, he's worked with everybody, hasn't he? But see, I think those people are for the watching and I think they're in the same bracket of people who say they don't like the Beatles their ears are painted on the guy is a musical genius <laughs> I've never heard that when their ears are painted on that's brilliant <laughs> that's what I'm taking away from this podcast <laughs> <laughs> we're on to the the song that has been reverberating through your head since listening to it, American Science you know and now now that we're talking about it I can't even think of how the tune goes <laughs> But, but yeah, I think um, there's obviously there, there's there's something really, really catchy to it because, you know, it has really stuck in my head. And I think that it, it is one of the, the songs on, on the album that it has taken a few listens to to kind of warm to it. And to begin with, I was a little bit apathetic towards it. But yeah, it has definitely grown on me. And um, apparently what I had read about this particular song was that if they had done a little bit different planning with the release of singles and the album had done a little bit better than it had done. This had potentially been one of the, the future singles on, on the, uh, on the album. And I think, yeah, absolutely right. Because, you know, if it can get stuck in your head in 2021, then, you know, there's gotta be some merit to it. I agree with you. I think it's a, I really like it as a song. I think it's maybe unfair sometimes that, you know, when you're reading things that people say they maybe chose the wrong singles, I think maybe kind of more to what you were alluding to yeah earlier on about how they were maybe seen in, as in being in fashion. You were making that comparison with you two, which they make themselves in the, the t- Three to Get Ready documentary. So I, I think maybe even if they'd chosen three different songs from the album, it maybe just wasn't their time to be the kind of smash hit band that they, ha- they had to kind of reinvent themselves. And so even if it had been American Science, say that it had been the second single, the first single, I'm not sure if it would have done massively better. 
So we move on next to uh, track number three, Skin Trade. Well, that is my favourite song on the album. I absolutely love that song. I think it's a brilliant single. Obviously, that's where they get the line for the Strange Behaviour Tour as well. And apparently, again, just from reading up on it, Andy Taylor's credited as, as a session guitarist on it. I haven't played. He's obviously played something on the, the early demos of it. But I, I just think... I think it's cool, it's funky. I think if you heard it today for the first time, I think you would still be impressed. And I think um, it's been quite a contentious song, I think, for Duran Duran. And um, it wasn't very well received at all over in America. I think Americans being kind of sometimes the prudish lot that they can be, they felt it was a little bit too risque. And I think apparently the um, even the, the single cover was Christy Turlington's Bare Backside. And oh, people were up in arms about that. God forbid. See, see an ass. <laughs> <laughs> but then um, there was some other critique that I read about the, the single. And they mentioned Simon using a Prince-like falsetto. That's not what I heard when, when I heard the song. How about you? I think he's definitely singing in a higher pitch. That, I mean, I don't know. Again, I don't know whether that is falsetto. I think he's definitely kind of higher pitch in terms of his his singing. But I think that works really well in terms of the kind of feel of the song. Yeah, but I'm not convinced that he was trying to imitate Prince on that one. I don't know if they're just trying to to make a a weird link on that one. But but yeah, I think it's it's definitely a a great song. And, and, you know, even on the, uh, the documentary, Three to Get Ready, they do focus a lot on getting the sound right for the for the live tour. And it was interesting to hear it broken down kind of in its in its components, to hear it like that and, and to see how much of a perfectionist Simon Le Bon is with with his um with his music. Yeah. And I think as well, I think again from that documentary, it's very obvious they've got a, the three of them is a really, really keen musical ear. I think he seems to be very good in terms of melodies as well. But just be able to hear what needs to be sung sung and when. And I I, I think it does work really brilliantly in skin trade. Yeah, definitely. The fourth song is a matter of feeling, which interestingly, when I was listening to them on Spotify, if you look at the Notorious album, that's the second most popular song that's been listened to off that album after Notorious by quite considerable distance. I think we spoke before about sometimes albums, you know, kind of really strong first three songs hit you one, two, three. I think particularly the, the first side of this album, I think it's particularly strong because I think a matter of feeling that would be right up there as well with one of my favourite songs on the album. I, I I love that song. Yeah, I agree with you. What I tend to do is I'll get the track listing and I'll just put the album on and I'll just kind of jot down my my initial thoughts to it all. And my my first one was, yeah, I like this one. And um, and then, you know, upon listening to it a little bit more over time, I kind of felt like it was kind of a, a little bit of a link to the previous albums. I thought maybe there was a bit of a save a prayer synthy sound on this one. So, you know, it, it was a nice touch that, you know, they, yeah, totally get that they're trying to move forward and do things, do different things each time, but they're not forgetting their past. And I think, you know, that, that shows in this song here. I think that's maybe one of the ones that, you know, we're talking about the choice of singles. It'd have been interesting. Again, I still stand by what I said, I don't know if any song would have made a difference. It would have been interesting to see what the reaction would have been to that, if that had been a single. Yep, definitely, for sure. The, then we've got the, uh, the last track 
on on the the first side hold me now you know like i just said that that i would listen to the album and just make jot down my notes for my initial impressions this one for uh, my notes on this one for hold me meh <laughs> <laughs> then filler question mark so i was yeah i wasn't too sure about this one i think this is a grower it's funny because especially since the last podcast was talking about Arcadia and Power Station, it was almost like those two side projects stripped out the different aspects of Duran Duran and, and just divided them between the kind of the rock side, the heavy guitar, the bass, and then the kind of more synth melodic side. Then they all come back together for this album. A Hold Me certainly feels less funky and more rocky than some of the other songs. But I've found that the more I've listened to it, Actually, the more I've, I've started to quite enjoy it, and I actually feel that it's, it's quite a strong, now feel quite, it's quite a strong track to finish the, the first side with. It's, it's kind of grown on me. Yeah, I, I you know, agree. I, I think that it's definitely a, a rockier uh, sound to it. And, and uh, you know, the notes that I've made is a, a really strong drum presence. So again, going back to Steve Ferrone, there's definitely, you know, a, a, a nice beat to that, to that song. And yeah, maybe over the course of time, as I listen to the album more and more, that one might might uh, take its place in my heart. We shall see. But that is an interesting thing because I think until we started in this podcast, I've never really sat and listened to albums that forensically. So I'll just listen to them, and sometimes you concentrate more than on songs than depending on what else you're doing. But it's quite interesting what you've done just to make that initial reaction, and it's maybe a, a way of listening to other music like that just to see maybe what your initial reaction is, and then once you've listened to it a few times, whether that stays the same or whether it gets better or whether actually you like a like song less. Yeah, you know, and, and I think, you know, you, you've kind of alluded to this sort of thing when you say that, that you really focus in on the first track and the last track on an album. You kind of make a, a snap decision. Yeah, I really like that. And especially with, with Notorious, I actually had it on over the course of my working day. And so, you know, I was doing my work, but I, I was listening at the same time. And, you know, it was something would really have to jump out at me and, and I would actually stop what I was doing and just put the notes down and going, yeah, this is definitely, you know, there are just some songs out there that will instantly grab you. And then there are others that will do take a little bit more time and a, and a few more listens before they'll become one of your favorites. Well, that is us at the end of side one. Um, and we're going to go through side two shortly, but as always, we take a breather uh, in order to bring in a member of my family. And of course, talking about my daughter, Rebecca, who is going to read us Duran Duran part six. So Rebecca, take it away. The Story of Duran Duran, Part 6 When Duran Duran reconvened in 1986 to begin working on Notorious, their fourth studio album, it was only Simon Le Bon, Nick Rhodes and John Taylor who turned up in the studio. The band had already confirmed that drummer Roger Taylor had left the band, while Andy Taylor appeared reluctant to return to the fold. He would ultimately confirm his departure from the band, though he did play in some of the initial album sessions. Niall Rogers, who was producing the Notorious album, provided the guitar on various tracks, while Warren Cucurullo was recruited to the band, adding to some tracks on the album and going out with Duran Duran on the subsequent world tour. The first single from the album, the song Notorious, was released in October 1986 and reached number two in the US charts and number seven in the UK. 
It was one of three singles from the album, the other two being Skin Trade and Meet El Presidente, neither of which did as well in the charts. The Notorious album also represented a change of sound for the band, while Niall Rogers' influence evident throughout, and it reached number 12 in the US Billboard charts, while getting to number 16 in the UK. In March 1987, Duran Duran embarked on their Strange Behaviour tour, which began in Japan, followed by the European leg and then on to North America. The band also filmed their preparations for the tour, which was shown in a documentary, Three to Get Ready, which also highlighted some of the tensions with Andy Taylor. After 100 gigs on the tour, at the end of August 1987, the band took some time off before turning their attentions to a fifth studio album. Now we're on to the second side of no, no, Notorious Molly. And I have to say, this is to, to slightly paraphrase a kind of football saying as, as opposed to a game of two halves. This is, for me, this is an album of two halves or two sides. I think the first side is really strong. I'm not so not quite as impressed with the second side, which is why it might struggle to get into my top five ultimately. Ah, interesting. Okay, because... Um... I thought it was definitely a, a mixed bag, really, as far as strength of tracks. But uh, I think there are actually a couple of songs on the, on the second side that would enter into my higher ranking songs for Duran Duran. So where do you stand then on the first song, which is Vertigo? It is my, that's my favourite track on the album. Interesting. Yeah, really, really like that one. Again, like what we were just saying um, before Rebecca's piece, I don't know if it's because... It somehow entered into my consciousness because I do remember it from from back in the day. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, this is one of those that it does. Again, it reminds me of 86, 87. So that's the reason why it's probably continuing to be one of my favorite tracks. Because you know how we've spoken about it before of. So obviously the full title is Vertigo, open brackets, do the demolition, close brackets. And actually, I always wonder if it was originally, the song was originally called Do the Demolition, because obviously that's in the, the lyrics. But maybe when they, they get the hold of this Hitchcock theme, that's when they ended up calling it Vertigo and it just stuck. I like the chorus. I must admit, I think it's got a really good chorus. Quite catchy. Maybe with regards to the name, maybe just the American record company got their hands on it and just had to make it double the length that it really, really needed to be. What do you think to the next track then, So Misled? Well, my first, when I first wrote down, and obviously the first thing I wrote down was an album track. Now, that obviously, they're all album tracks, so that's a bit obvious, but it's very much an album track. I don't think it's one of the strongest, for me, I don't think it's one of the strongest songs on the album. It's not really memorable for me at all. I'm quite happy just to not skip it, but I, it's uh, instantly forgettable, I think. Well, it's funny with this one because it bugged me because um, there's... One of the lines where Simon's like, I'm not even going to try to sing. Ah, 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 shouldn't be so misled. And I was just like, that sounds like another song. And I know what I just said there will not bear any resemblance to singing or any other songs or anything like that. But it was really, really pissing me off. I'm like, I know it's just, you know, when there's just something on the tip of your tongue and you're just like, oh, I can't think what it is. And then it hit me. It sounds like the Rolling Stones Harlem Shuffle. Ah, oh, yeah. Yes, so, it does, yeah. And it's funny because then I started looking at the, the song, the Rolling Stones one, and that was released in 86 as well. So I'm wondering 
who who was stealing from who on that one? To be fair, I know Harlem Shuffle is a is a cover, but but yeah, that was that's what I associate that song with now. And to be honest, I'm not the biggest Rolling Stones fan, so yeah, this song so misled is not really one of my favorites either. Do you know it's interesting when you were talking about that and the and I hadn't even thought of that, but then you know immediately that song goes through my head. I don't know if you saw on Twitter recently. There's a pop star, I don't, I don't know who she is, Olivia Rodrigo. She was accused, I think, on Twitter, I think people had accused her of uh, her track Brutal, saying that she stole or she's used the chord sequence from Elvis Costello's 1978 hit Pump It Up and saying it was a direct, pretty much a direct lift. Elvis Costello replied to that tweet and said, that's fine by me, it's how rock and roll works. You take the broken pieces of another thrill and make it a brand new toy, that's what I did. And then made references to like Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues, Chuck Berry's Too Much Monkey Business. So he was influenced by Bob Dylan, who was influenced by Chuck Berry, and uh, Olivia Rodrigo is influenced by Elvis Costello, which I thought was really nice, because so often if artists think there's a chance of maybe there's plagiarism, and I, th- I suppose it depends who, who the artist is, that they, they may be quite litigious. And I quite liked the fact that Elvis Costello was cool enough to say, oh, that's fine. And I, you know, I can't remember the exact wording of it, but hasn't somebody said there's, there's no, no original thoughts left out there in the world. So, you know, it's bound to happen that things, like you said, you know, they'll take bits and pieces from here, there, everywhere. So yeah, it's no surprise. And just like it's no, no, notorious, somebody <laughs> singing the word I, of course, is going to go I, I, I in some form or other. So it's like, they're all going to sound much of a muchness. There's a wee bit of singing beginning to creep into this, Molly. I think you're just I think you're just building yourself up to one of the podcast episodes. You're actually going to give us a song. Maybe on the last one, after I've drunk a bottle of wine, I might get the karaoke machine out, but no, never. I'm not going to subject anybody to that one. <laughs> well, we'll, just, we'll just have to take your word for it. Yeah, I think you're you're secretly you're a you're a great singer and you're just trying to hide that from us. Definitely not. I've been scarred. <laughs> And, and told never to sing, so I never will. <laughs> Fair enough. Meet El Presidente, which was the, the third single. And the single sounds is very different, much more upbeat, as if it was being remixed for almost like the clubs as opposed to the, the album version. First of all, what do you think of the song and do you, do you have a preference of either of the versions? I only ever listen to what the version is that's on YouTube or on Spotify. So I, I don't know the different versions. Although saying that, you know, as part of the documentary, they show them performing El Presidente on Soul Train. And, you know, I'd, I'd mentioned at the beginning of the, of the podcast, that just makes me laugh because obviously I would guess the American listeners will know that the, the backstory to Soul Train, but for the British listeners, Soul Train was, and I don't even know if it's still going or not, but I remember watching Soul Train from the time that I was a small child. And it was kind of the format like a Top of the Pops, but it was very much marketed at uh, African-Americans. You know, it was really, you know, funk, soul, that sort of stuff. And then to have three whiter than white British pop stars appear on Soul Train was really quite funny. And the version that they did on Soul Train had a bit of a, a Calypso vibe to it. And they actually got the people dancing in the audience to that song. So I was like, respect, you know, that I think they did a pretty good uh, version of that one. And, and I quite like the song. It does kind of 
it transcends the time, you know, where I've said a lot of the album feels quite stuck in the mid to late 80s. I think this one is, is a pretty classic sound. So I think, you know, this one would probably do well even in 2021 as, as a single. Because probably if you've listened to, if you've just gone on YouTube, I think it is the, it's the official video. I think it is the single. And I think it is a catchier version of, of a, I think it's a decent song. But obviously that didn't do very well as a single. So and it was also apparently over here in Scotland. I say Scotland, obviously the whole of the UK, but I'm just flying the flag for my country. They had a music program called The Tube, which was on a, a Channel Four, and it was a kind of it was a kind of antithesis of Top of the Pops, and that everybody played live. It was a kind of more magazine-y type feel, and a lot of bands were discovered. They played their first live TV appearances were on The Tube, but apparently in the very last episode in 1987, Sir Duran Duran were one of the guests on the show, and that was one of the songs that they played uh, on the very last episode of The Tube. Oh, interesting. I wonder if that's a, if we can find that clip on YouTube. You probably will. I did like the two, but that was uh, with Jules Holland, wasn't it? Yeah, and Paula Yates. My favourite clip in the tube, that I'm a big fan of a band called The Proclaimers, who are, a, again, a brilliant Scottish band. They sang, they did, I think the, the song they sang, maybe it was Letter to America. They, play, they played a couple of songs from their first album. It was just the two brothers, twins. One sang one of the acoustic guitar, and they sang in a very broad Scottish accent. And I think the first time they appeared in the tube, I think everybody just went, what on earth is that? But they are amazing. They're an amazing band. I do like it when people sing in their accents. I think that's quality. Anywho, on to the, the next track, Winter Marches On. I think from the, uh, the Twitter comments, it's a bit of a, a mixed bag of, of uh, opinions on, on this one. I started off, my first comment was navel gazy. This is definitely one of those, you know, kind of, the melancholy side of Duran Duran, I think. And the, the next line I put down was a very wintry vibe. And I, you know, maybe I was just easily influenced by the, the song title. I can sometimes be like that. But um, yeah, it was just, it was okay. It was apparently the, the B-side to Notorious, wasn't it? And apparently this was the first time that Duran Duran used just a pure album track as the B-side because normally they would do original songs for their b-sides yeah i i just wonder if this is one of those kind of throwaway things because you know on previous single releases we talked about how simon and nick would you know lock themselves into a recording studio to come up within 24 hours as this banging b-side track to albums and this one kind of seemed a little bit lazy let's just stick an album track on there and just get it out there so yeah not one of my favorites well for me it's another one of those songs that grows on me that I think the more that I've listened to it the more that I've I've enjoyed it and actually I would have preferred this to have been the last track on the album you know I always talk about liking the first track I always I always like to see how the the band finish an album and I think Winter Marches On would have been a better song to finish the album because actually again it's it's grown on me and, and the more it's one of those ones that actually has stuck a wee bit in my head after quite a few listens and I actually really like it for me it's probably the strongest song in, in side two, I think. Okay, cool. Well, if we move swiftly on to the, the last track of the album, Proposition, you obviously have a great influence over me, Paul, because when I saw that it was the last track of the album, I was like, oh, I better sit up and really pay attention to this <laughs> one closely to see if it, you know, does it pass the Paul Cudahy proof of a good album kind of thing. And yeah, I thought it was a, another meh one. The line that I put on this one, a more mature, boring sound. 
I think um, over in America, American radio kind of went through a phase. I think it was around about the mid 80s uh, that uh, it was just ever so bland and it was just much of a muchness. And I think that's kind of what I'm referring to when I say it was a boring, mature sound. It just it just didn't reach out and grab me in any way. Because what surprised me about it, as I say, I don't think it's a brilliant song at all to end the album. I would even have swapped them round and put Proposition at nine and put Winter Marches on at the end. And again, it's another one of those songs where I think Andy's credited as playing on it. What I was going to say is what surprises me is that for that, you know, where Notorious started off and gave you that sense that we're going to listen to something different. It's a bit funkier. We talked about the Nile Rogers chic influence. The album doesn't finish like that because I think that's another rockier song whether that's Andy's influence. Not that it doesn't fit in, because there's maybe one or two songs like that, but I just think it would have been better to fit if it wasn't going to be a slower song, to fit one of the, even if So Misled, which I don't think is a great song, but I think it's it would have finished the album better. I wonder, just with a, a conspiracy theorist head on, I just wonder if maybe there was something, you know, within all the, the legal wranglings that happened between the band and Andy Taylor, maybe there was something in the... Uh, in the agreements that they had to put a certain number of tracks where he played a, a major influence or played on the on the track to be included on the album. Who knows? But as I say, I don't. For me, that that's uh, it's not the it's not a strong track to finish an album on. Mm-hmm. Although I think overall, I do really like Notorious. I think there's enough on the album that would be in the, the upper reaches of of my ranking of of the album. But as I say, I'm not quite sure if it will. It will be able to push itself into the, the top five for me. Yeah, I um, you know, I said at the outset that I, I wasn't too sure where I would place this one, but I think I'll definitely continue to listen to it because, you know, I, I think there are some, some worthwhile tracks on it. And because, you know, I think we have agreed that that it is a, a grower. So, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely keep giving it a chance. But I think there, there are other Duran Duran albums that more grab you straight away and you just think, yeah, that is some... Those are some damn fine tunes and probably not notorious for me. Although I, I must admit, now that we've said to people that we're going to be doing this of, you know, getting people to choose their top five albums and we'll, we'll do the interviews with people once Future Past comes out later in the year. Every now and again, I find myself thinking of of how I would, I would, I would rank them and, and some of the albums are jostling for position just in and outside the top five. So I, I think once it actually comes to doing it, it'll be, it'll be quite an agonising decision, I think. Yeah, and it's it's going to be just like, you know, we always say, you know, you, you might have your first two, bam, bam, you know, those are those are set in stone kind of thing. But depending on which way the wind is blowing, who knows what your three, four and five might be. But yeah, you know, we've had some really great feedback from uh, listeners of the podcast. Please do continue to send in your voice recordings of, of your top three. And, you know, as as we move through the albums put together your top five top 10 Duran Duran albums list for us as well because that'll be really interesting you know once we've had a chance to run through them all to see where everybody places their favorites absolutely and obviously MD who wants to take part in the, the podcast either by recording your top three Duran Duran songs or as Molly says if you want to start thinking about what your top five albums would be but you obviously have to wait until the new album comes out and we'll be looking to interview people and just have basically a Duran Duran chat to people. So you can get in touch with us either at Twitter, which is at Albums Duran, or you can email us. And the email address is Duran Duran at paulcuddehy.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. We're going to, again, hear from a different voice. 
and this time it's it's an interview that we've done with Elisa Lorello, who wrote a memoir called Friends of Mine, which is a brilliant book. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. We're going to put the full interview up as a bonus episode in the next week. But for now, here's just a, a wee clip of Elisa talking about her love of Duran Duran. I mean, certainly over here, I remember being at school and Duran Duran were seen maybe to an extent as being a, a, a girls' band. Certainly in the early days, there was just such this, you know, there was a certain level of hype surrounding them and, and they had a lot of female fans. So for a lot of guys, you either didn't admit, or they, they, you know, there wasn't this same groundswell of fandom, as it were. But then yes. I, I but, so even now, sometimes I'll say to people that, you know, I'm still friends with, with a friend of mine since we were at school and, and, and he's still, if I say Duran Duran, he kind of, it's almost like he goes back to being a teenager again and goes, well, you don't like them. But then I think there's 40 years worth of music there. A, there's a reason why they're still going after 40 years. Very few bands do. There's no way you can listen to all that and not find something that you like. It's, I think that's impossible. Well, that, you know, and that's funny because even my brothers had that reaction back in the mid 80s that this is, this is not a band to take seriously musically. But I think as, as their career progressed and they got older, me, meaning Duran Duran, and they got more sophisticated as musicians, my brothers started to really listen to them a little bit. I mean, especially when the wedding album came out. I mean, two, at least two of my brothers listened to Ordinary World and had, and had that kind of reaction of, God, I wish I wrote that song. Like, that is a really, really great song. And Come On Done, they really like. So I think as they progressed, they kind of realized, okay, these are musicians. These are not pop stars. These are, you know, they are pop stars and they are musicians. And even my husband, because of me, started listening to more than just the hits and developed an appreciation for them and especially developed an appreciation for them when he saw them live with me. And I said that to him because he had never seen them live before until, until he and I got together. And I did kind of tell him that. I'm like, you don't have to become a fan of them, but you are going to develop a whole new appreciation for them once you see them live. And he totally did. He just said, these guys can play. These guys know how to connect to an audience. They know what they're doing. (laughs) They write great songs. And he just developed a whole new appreciation for them. He would never call himself a fan, I don't think. But he... Yeah, he definitely, they were not just the band that all the girls liked in the 80s with those, you know, with Hungry Like the Wolf. You know, he yeah. has only respect for them. When we uh, sat down to record this episode, Molly, and, and we've talked about this book before, but uh, it finally arrived, the, the postman finally delivered my book. The book by Annie Zaleski, who's been a guest on the podcast, her book on Rio, the album, and... I'm so excited to read it, actually. I've already started reading the introduction, but it's just it just looks absolutely brilliant. It's just a detailed, it's almost a pocket-sized book in this 33 and a third imprint by Bloomsbury. And again, it's available. It's been available in the States for a while, but it's now July the 1st was when it became available in the UK and in Scotland. So it's a book I would recommend. And another one that's just come out, which I noticed called... Please, please tell me now the Duran Duran story by Stephen Davis. So again, it's it's just come out telling the story, I presume, just of the band from the very beginnings right up to now. But I presume just to coincide with the 40th anniversary of the band, which kind of shows you that there's still 
interesting people writing about it and interesting people reading about them as well as listening to them. Absolutely. This is, you know, one of the, the premises for us to do this podcast was that this is a band that has stood the test of time and, you know, just all the interest that still seems to be swirling around them. And I don't know if it's just because I follow Duran Duran on, on Twitter and on Instagram and that sort of thing, but, you know, that I think they are really trying to, to keep the momentum going. Fair enough, things have gone a little bit more quiet now that the Invisible single has, has come out and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think it's going to be amazing. I, I, I can't wait for uh, September, October time when the new album comes out. But just to go back to uh, Annie Zaleski's book, see, Paul, if, if you like brought yourself up into the 21st century, you could have read the book by now. I had it when it was released on my Kindle. So uh, it's a great read. I have to say, I, I always prefer an actual physical book. I'm very old fashioned that way. So I've, I have a Kindle and I, ha- I do occasionally read books on an e-reader, but a book for me is it's always better. Books, albums, I guess we'll always agree to disagree that you need the physical copy and I, I'm quite happy to put everything out on the cloud. We uh, come to our top three choice again. We were always asking people to send in their, their top three songs. And if MD's listening, we always put this bit at the end of the podcast. If it's something you'd like to do, we've, we've had a few people that have sent their entries in and we'll be using them in the, in the future episodes. If it's something you'd like to do, just record it, just a wee voice recording on your phone. Tell us who you are, why you like the band, and then the three songs you've chosen and a wee bit about why. And every everyone that's done them, it's been brilliant just listening to them. And the latest one I mentioned right at the start of the podcast is from my sister, Anne-Marie. And... Once I sent her the first podcast episode and she did say to me after that, after she listened to it, she spent ages sitting up at night agonising over what her top three would be. So I'd nagged her for a wee while just to to record her top three. So here is my sister Anne-Marie with her top three Duran Duran songs. Hi, my name's Anne-Marie. I'm one of Paul's sisters and I'm also a big Duran Duran fan. I have Paul to thank for that as he very much introduced me to them in 1981 with the Planet Earth, Careless Memories and Girls On film singles and then the iconic Rio album in 1982 and I've loved them ever since. Paul's four and a half years older than me so I was only 10 when I first got into the band with the early singles and I always felt I benefited a bit in my early teens from having a slightly cooler musical taste than perhaps others my age because I was listening to music that my older brother was into. So thanks very much for that, Paul. And I very much owe you because I think Duran Duran are a fantastic band and I still love them to this day. So in terms of my top three, I think like others have said, it's so difficult because there's so many fabulous uh, songs. But here goes. Um, My first one is from the Rio album. I think there are so many songs on that that you could choose, but the one I've gone for is Hungry Like the Wolf. I think the reason I've chosen this really, I suppose it reflects the age I was at. I was only 11 at the time when that came out. So I think given the age I was, that song appealed to me more than perhaps more grown-up romantic songs on the album, like Save a Prayer. I think it's a really dancey pop song. I love the drums and electronica sound and I always think it sounds quite futuristic, quite pacey, like a chase or a hunt that they're on. 
with the words and um, I've always loved that song and I still do. So that's my number one. My second song is Ordinary World uh, from The Wedding Album. I think that's a really beautiful song and it reminds me in some ways of Save a Prayer because it's also got a really distinctive intro and some similar sounds. I really love Simon's singing on this and also the guitar section in the middle of the song, but I think it's got really lovely lyrics as well. And it always feels a very moving and passionate song um, and a bit melancholic, but ultimately seems quite a positive song in the words, you know, I will learn to survive. I just always think it's a really beautiful song. So that's my second one. And for my third one, I agonised over this. Um, I could have gone for others off the, the Rio album or elsewhere, but I decided to go for a different period. And it was uh, the one I've chosen is Skin Trade from 1987 off the Notorious album. I love this song. I think it's quite a different sound while still having the, the distinctive Duran Duran drums, guitar, electronica sounds. It's it's very much more of a kind of soul funk sound, which I really love. And it always felt more grown up. I was 16 or almost 16 when this came out. So again, it was just, it felt like Duran Duran were evolving um, from where they were when I was first listening to them when I was 10. So I, I just always really loved this song. I've heard them playing it live several times and, and I've always thought it was really um, a great song live. And there's a great line in the lyrics where it says you get angry at the weekend, then go back to school. And I always loved that, perhaps because I was almost 16 at the time. Maybe it just resonated with me. But I think it's just a great song. And I think some of the later ones, like Come Undone from the the Wedding Album, you can actually hear some similarities uh, with Skin Trade. So, So that's my number three. So um, I just also wanted to say really loving the podcast. I'm really enjoying the dynamic between you both and uh, also the transatlantic element where we're hearing US and UK experiences of Duran Duran being recounted. So really loving it. Keep up the good work and uh, I'll keep listening. Thank you. So I just think, at least if I've, I've done one good thing in terms of influencing my family to turn, turn into be Duran Duran fans, at least one of my sisters is a big Duran Duran fan as well. Absolutely. You know, I think there is so much to be said by the influences that your older siblings have on your musical tastes. I know my older sister, the stuff that she listened to informed the bands that I got into. But I have to say, I actually introduced her to Duran Duran. So I'm, I'm taking the credit on that one for the Williams family. And the other, the other uh, musical memory I share with you about my, me and my sister is when I bought the Adam and the Ants album, Kings of the World Frontier, and I think that would have been a, maybe as late as 80, I can't remember offhand, but I'd brought it home from school and my gran used to stay with us and she had a border collie dog called Laddie who had been our companion for years and years, so it became part of the family and the dog sadly had died, it just it was just too old. And so when I came in and everybody was upset, and my, my youngest sister, who would have still been at primary school at the time, she's about four or five years younger than me. And as a way of kind of trying to cheer her up, I said, do you want to listen to my new album? And so we sat and 
put the album on my dad's turntable and we sat in the room, in the dining room, and the two of us just sat and listened. And I don't remember us really saying anything, but it was just, I don't know if it was just that her sitting with her older brother and listening to this different type of music. And it's always, whenever I listen to that album, that always reminds me of that time. I don't know if it, I don't know if it still reminds Anne-Marie of that, but I just always remember that album. And the greatest irony of that is, as if they'll know who knows the album, the first track on it is called Dog Eat Dog. <laughs> Probably po- scarred poor Henry's brain for music for the rest of the life with that one. <laughs> Brilliant. Which is a great album, actually. Yeah, well, you know, my family, we, we did seem to be quite into music because I remember my dad had his turntable and he used to collect vinyl. And it was always like if he was away on business or anything like that, we would we would sneak into his his vinyl cabinet and play his records and it was just like he had pretty good taste um kind of jazzy sort of stuff and he used to play the drums himself when he was younger so um yeah I think I, I had pr- a, a pretty damn good musical education when I was younger and it's led to Duran Duran and and this podcast yes thanks William's family mom and dad we are we're almost getting to the end of the no no notorious podcast and Obviously, the next album up on the Duran Duran discography is Big Thing, which I'm really looking forward to this episode because this, this is one of my favourite Duran Duran albums, actually, so I'm really looking forward to it. The other thing I was going to say to people, and it struck me that when we're telling the story of Duran Duran and we've done all the albums and we've done the side projects, but there's also some non-album tracks that maybe get lost along the way. So The Wild Boys, A View to a Kill, I suppose it's there's something I should know, certainly in, in Scotland, wasn't on the album. So I was wondering if people would even want to to send in what they think would be the best non-album tracks. And if we get enough of them, we could even do a, an episode just discussing those songs. But it'd just be quite interesting. Secret October, which is a B-side, but again, it's not an album track. That would be another one. You know, if we get about eight to ten, we could do a, a non-album tracks podcast episode. Yeah, cool. That would be great if people send in their ideas to the, the email or on Twitter for us. And let's see what, what the, the chat is. And, and if you guys want us to do a, a, an extra episode on that, by all means, please do let us know. Excellent. So in the meantime, I shall uh, probably stop calling the album not, not Notorious. And hopefully... No, 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 don't stop. <laughs> see what you did there. That was very good. Uh, Well, thanks everybody for listening and join us again for Big Thing. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thanks, guys, and and keep your ideas uh, coming through for us. All appreciated. Thanks for joining us on the Duran Duran Albums podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you can subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us, that will help other Duranis to find us. And of course, if you can spread the word about the podcast, all the better. You can also let us know what you think of the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Albums Duran or email us at durandoran at paulcudahy.com. Join us next time on the podcast. And in the meantime, keep listening to Duran Duran like some new romantic looking for the TV sound.